0: you're curious about how much iron you need. And a quick Google search lands you on like a pretty official looking website that tells you that women need 18 milligrams of iron a day and men need 8 milligrams of iron a day. Pretty straightforward, right? Except now, imagine you're a trans woman. How do you know which dosage is right for you? I'm Desiree Nielsen, registered dietitian and host of the All Sorts podcast, and I hope you'll stay tuned for an important look at nutrition, gender, how we research both and how it affects all gender-diverse people, including you and me. Gender, or biological sex, is baked into medicine and nutrition. There are places where this makes a lot of sense, such as the study of reproduction and the reproductive systems and organs. And some, like nutrition, where it makes less sense than you might think. Let's talk about iron again for a second. Why do we need iron? Well, for starters, One of the reasons we need iron is because iron gets incorporated into our red blood cells, which all of us have as humans, and those red blood cells help shuttle oxygen throughout our body. But what influences how much we need? When you dig into the science, you realize that since we generally don't excrete iron unless we lose blood, people who menstruate may have a higher need than people who don't. And so the recommendation becomes, well, women need 18 milligrams while men need eight because women menstruate. But not only women can menstruate. Trans men can menstruate too. Or what about all of the inherent biases that we have around gender identity and food, like real men eat meat or girls eat salad? And how do we know what we know in nutrition? And what do you do as an evidence-based health professional when the norms you see around you don't seem to fit? These are just a few of the concepts I tackle in this conversation with Dr. Catherine Morley, PhD. Catherine is a recently retired professor of the School of Nutrition and Dietetics at Acadia University in Nova Scotia and the founder of Catherine Morley Dietetics. Catherine's work has focused on the meanings of eating, feeding people when they are sick, as well as the food and nutrition needs of transgender and gender diverse people, And I've really been hoping to have this conversation for a long time. So I was so delighted to discover Dr. Morley's work in this area. And we talk about everything from the challenges in serving a diverse population from a profession that is still rather, well, undiverse. We talk about what evidence-based nutrition actually is and the like, generally accepted tenets and the biases inherent in research and funding and what that actually does to our profession. However, this episode isn't just for dietitians. In addition to other health professionals, I think that it might help spark a little bit more awareness in all of us and encourage us to expand our mindsets and celebrate the diversity that is all around. And I also want to take a minute to welcome back my friends at Botanica Health as episode sponsors because their Perfect Protein Elevator is my favorite protein ever. I've been using the Brain Booster Protein, which contains lion's mane and rhodiola, two of my rider dyes, for years now to help me shift out of mom brain and into work mode. Botanica Health uses digestion-friendly, organic whole food ingredients like brown rice, quinoa, and coconut, and full servings of active ingredients. There are three new varieties to choose from, immune supporter, sleep better, and I'm in love with a new energy booster, which contains 500 milligrams of Panax, ginseng, and cordyceps mushrooms in addition to B vitamins. Curious? Learn more at www.botanicahealth.com. Thank you so much for showing our sponsors some love because they make this podcast possible. Now, let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Katherine Morley. And this is why I'm so excited to talk to you (laughs) about this topic. So, you know, we were saying just a few minutes earlier that I, I have for a long time in my profession felt that I'm a little bit of a square peg in a round hole and that it is my nature to question things. And I don't always feel like that's welcome. And you definitely get the sense often in dietetics to like to never be wrong, right? Don't be risky because then you could be wrong. And to be wrong is like the absolute worst thing that you can
1: do. Correct. Yeah.
0: And, you know, so I'm I'm very excited now about what I see as more critical conversations that are taking place around like how we actually practice nutrition. Like, for example, the use of BMI as a tool in personal nutrition care or like how deeply eurocentric nutrition research as a field is mm-hmm. like the fixation on like the Mediterranean diet for example when there's like a whole other, like there's a whole literally a whole other world of dietary patterns and ways of eating and so this makes me really happy but one of the reasons why I'm so excited to talk to you is that what I'm not seeing a lot of is consideration of gender in nutrition. And yeah. you know, why That's do you true. feel that we are so slow to address this?
1: Well, Desiree, how much time do you have?
0: All of the time in the <laughs> you world told for you. told me 45
1: minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, why are we so slow to, what was the word did you use? Uh, address. Verb? Address, Yeah, well, golly, it all goes back to what you said at the beginning of don't question things. And so it's a very comfortable world for heterosexual cisgender people to make sure that everything that they see and hear fits within their frame of reference and their way of being in the world. It's comfortable, you know? And so, it, and, and I want to build on what you just said, like an awful lot of people have done an awful lot of work to get to the position where you and I could sit here today and even have this conversation. So my heart is full <laughs> in thanks for those those people. And why haven't we addressed gender? Well, because we live in a male-dominated society. In, I'll just speak about Canada because I don't know about the rest of the world. But we, we live in a, well, I don't know about the rest of the world. That's pretty darn true. But I do know there are other ways of getting your nourishment than through dumping some olive oil onto things. <laughs> okay. Well, our world is male-centric our thinking in dietetics has been male centric. So even though I don't know about you, but I was taught by almost exclusively women. when I was uh when I was a student, me I mean, too. an undergrad student, you too. And, you know, when those people, when I think about those women who taught me, so I was in university in the 70s, they had all been alive and serving during World War II. And the War. And I, I said to myself, they literally fought the war. And as my father and my grandfather used to say to me, who were in Europe during World War II, when you question authority, that's not how you win a war. You just do what you're told. So that's the mindset I think that's come along in our profession and probably all yeah. <laughs> professions, health professions. I'm going to talk about health and human service. I can't talk about everything else, but so don't question so we're socialized to not question and then i remember and i've been really kind of embarrassed and so sad by, like, I've, I've really taken to really feeling my feels, you know, like, if I'm sad, I'm sad. And one of the things I'm really sad about, I remember being taught as a, as a dietetic intern, that we were not supposed to talk to the physicians, and the especially the specialists, because they were far too busy. And we were to write a note and stick it on the front of the chart, so that they could read our note. And I'm thinking about how incredibly passive that is how that sets you up to believe me, a young, early 20s something, oh my gosh, they're way more important than I am. So why is that? Okay, they're physicians. Okay, so they have so much privilege in our society. Most of them were men. And they're too busy for us. We're in our small little affairs, you know, and that was how I was socialized. And of course, darn it all, didn't I do the same thing when I had interns as a, and I was a preceptor. So I'm really embarrassed about that. I-, I wish there had been some really strong feminists around who said, no, like that's nonsense. We need to talk to these people. If we're all part of a team, as we're being told we are, and I'm talking about in the 80s, I'm not talking about today, but a person might think, "Hmm, I just was trained in the 20s. And I wonder about that. Anyway, I, I wish there had been a big influx. It was the 70s it was after women's lib in the 60s. So, supposedly, right? No, it was the 80s. All of that stuff about women's rights and voices of women being heard wasn't heard where I worked. That's for sure. And I think it's only happened like little little, little, tiny bits over 40 years where people, so we've just ascertained before she hit record, there's a 20 year plus age difference between us. So it's really interesting because it's really a generational perspective, which is, you know, and then for you now, Desiree, there's people a whole generation younger than you who are dietitians, right? Yeah. So I think it's so interesting to think about what happened from the 40 years I've been practicing in terms of dietitians' voices being heard. And now, you know, like what what's happened and are they being heard? And if they're not, golly darn it, we got to do something about that. Because, yeah, it's, I'd usually say stronger language, but golly yeah. darn it works for me today. Okay, so <laughs> back to gender. So it's yeah. a masculist world. Everything, 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 everything that we read comes from a masculist lens. Masculism being, you know, think of feminism, masculism, what counts as knowledge, what counts as important. And we haven't, as women, we've had some incredible women in uh, Canadian history who've questioned all of that. I don't think that's, it's found its way through in dietetics yet. And yeah. uh, I think so we're just starting to talk about it. So that's about gender writ large. And then if I may, Desiree, if that's okay to get to, so when we think about what is gender, and how is it expressed? And what do people need from us, who have moved beyond the binary of male and female in their lives? Is that okay, if we go there? Please do. Yes. Yeah. Okay, you know, so we think about people who are who identify as gender diverse, trans, some, some f- folks identify as trans. And what's happening in and in, in I'm like, I I am not part of that world. So I live vicariously through one of my kids and one of my children who who does identify as gender diverse. And so I, I pick up a lot just by listening to the things that they that they're talking to me about. You know, trans can be simplify oversimplified reductionism that's another part of it. Desiree, let's come back to that and yeah. we'll write that down because that's all part of this gender question you ask about here, right? Okay, so let's reduce it down to its simplest thing. Well if a person's not accepting the binary of male and female, then they must be accepting the binary of the male transition to female and female transition to male. There you go. Nice and tidy, all tidied up. Let's go home. That's not true. That's just so blatantly not true. It's all over the place. There's fluidity. And even if a person identifies by a certain, like, where are they in the world of gender? Because it's, it's not linear. It's hugely diverse, right? Where do they? They may not identify that way later on today. Maybe it's different from how they felt this morning and that's okay. You know, and so yes, so then we get to what you said earlier about BEE and BMI. You didn't mention BEE basal mm-hmm. energy expenditure, but let's do that now, shall we? Yes, and yeah, BMI. Let's do it. So like
0: <laughs> and let's, let's and let's define so let's define these two terms for folks who may not yeah. be like super into nutrition. So what is BEE?
1: Basal Energy Expenditure, which was created during the Industrial Revolution to ascertain how little did mill owners have to feed their mill workers in order for them to still work. That was its origin. Yeah, I mean... This, this, I showed you this earlier, but I'm going to show it to you again. t t-shirt that my friend Lucy Afremor, Dr. Lucy Afremor, gave me. And it says, I am not a bomb calorimeter. And so that was used in the early days of nutritional science to ascertain how much energy did a sample of food have so that they could calculate. That's where those, you know, how many calories in a donut, you know, how many calories in a carrot. That's where all that stuff came from. Yeah, right? The
0: The origin of the lunacy that is the 100 calorie snack pack became, you know, like, that bomb calorimeter—the idea
1: of—is a hundred calorie snack pack. I
0: know, right? Like, what is all it? Of these just well, it was like one of these things that you know, particularly when I was still in private practice, you know, people are like, oh, well, I snack on these hundred calorie snack packs of cookies and things because they're only a hundred calories. I'm like, what does calories tell you anything, anything about the food? It doesn't oh, tell you goodness. the protein for your muscles. Good it doesn't word. tell you the vitamin C for your meat. like. We just calorie became. The end all be all of nutrition. And that was the origin of like figuring out, well, what is the potential energy of a food? But our bodies don't work like that. So when we say we are not a balm calorimeter, it means we are not the same as that machine that determined this calorie count for a food, which has no meaning and like importance in how we choose our foods on a day to day basis. Just no. garbage.
1: So, listeners, I hope that you got that message from Desiree. It has no <laughs> effect whatsoever on our on, on what we eat and why and how it makes us feel and all of the, and I mean feel in the biggest sense of the word. Wow. Mm. It's so huge. Like, it's so exciting for me to think about. Like, I think probably this is a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time, Desiree. So, I thank you very much. <laughs> and maybe we could do this without being recorded. I don't know. But to think about what if we took everything we thought we knew and just said, okay, that's not it. So now where are we at? Because I've heard this pre- expressed, we're going to come back to what's BMI, but just a minute. I've heard this expressed as, well, then I guess the world doesn't need dietitians. That's reductionist thinking too. That's a one or the other, right? Well, if you don't like the calculations that, that form how we've made decisions about other human beings in the past, then I guess you don't need me. You know, it's just very like hands up. I guess you don't need me. Oh, I, w- I could not disagree more. I think yeah. that for those those people who work who come at dietetics as a, I know some stuff about the body and how it uses food. I know some stuff. Yeah, I know some stuff about where food comes from. I know, you know, I can know some stuff about people and their relationships with food. Oh, that sounds so un. Professional. Oh, dear. I know some stuff. I know some things. But and you live a very complex life that I don't understand. I don't know anything about. So please share that with me. And maybe some of the stuff in my big storehouse of knowledge that's right behind me might be useful. But the most important and wonderful thing that we could offer people is to be there for them and, and witness their narrative and share their you know, they've got a place to share their story. And I'm I, I know from my work of, of years as a dietitian doing you nutrition counseling, which I did long before I was, was a dietitian working in a, you know, as a professor was me thinking, I have nothing nutrition to offer these folks from just based on their narrative. But they were so relieved of like, whew, Get all that, like all that stuff. So if there's a word for it, which I love, the stuff in their head about food and eating and what I'm supposed to do called dietary cacophony. It's the noise we hear about what we should be doing. And so much of that noise for us comes from inside our own heads, right? It's like, especially for women, I should do this. I should do that. I should.
0: Yeah, I... And we will come back. I mean, that BEE, the origin of the BEE, because I'm more familiar with BMI, which we'll come back to in a second. Yeah. Yeah. But just, I mean, everything that you have said right there, there are so many things that come to my mind. One, that, you know, like our profession is overwhelmingly white and female in Canada and often cisgendered female. And we have been so good. And one of, you know, one of the arguments sort of like raising awareness about like, what many people think of as feminism, but is really white feminism, is this idea that, you know, as like the white cis woman, our goal is simply to gain equality with white cis men, which completely <laughs> leaves out how damaging this entire system actually is. And I feel that sometimes in the field of dietetics, we've been really great at like creating that cage. Yeah for ourselves.
1: We've and been very good. Yeah. We've been
0: very good at very reductionist, binary, hierarchical thinking in our profession. And I agree with you that one of the, you know, biggest privileges of our profession and one of potentially the gifts that we have to give is that in a healthcare system that is sort of characterized by these very transactional, very brief, very rushed interactions. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, dietitians have the most time to spend. The most time to be there to witness to help. I don't know when you were talking about that like nutritional cacophony. I almost think of like so we're the defragmenters, right? Like you get like you have to defragment your hard drive. Get so much garbage we are in the it.
1: Defragmenters.
0: And the computer doesn't work so well, and you have to like defrag your hard drive. And like sitting down with a compassionate open, you know, humble dietitian allows you to sort of defrag in like the best possible way. I love that. And that has nothing to do with giving you a 1200 calorie meal plan, like which should never happen. Like
1: no, any
0: dietitian, like someone just recently asked me, I was like, oh, I want like a 1200 calorie meal plan. And I was like, no dietitian ever again, unless you are a child on like nutritional, you know, nutritional support, no dietitian should ever give anyone a 1200 calorie meal plan ever again. Mm -mm.
1: So much damage has been done. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, and I'm not making excuses for anybody, but with the best of intentions, we were taught to be good dietitians. And that word good is so loaded, right? But good dietitians, competent dietitians, that's the key word there, you know, competent, and that meant you knew your number stuff. And if you didn't do the number stuff, then you were I've been certainly questioned about maybe you're not quite uh, not very nice term about, you know, maybe you're you're a bit over it, you're a bit past it, you should like, mm-hmm. go. And that was because I refused to believe that this person who was extremely malnourished and needed you know, and and would benefit for sure. I hate to say anybody needs anything because who am I to say but in my recommendation, they needed a delivery of nutrients quickly, you know, and, and people with head and neck cancer usually have fantastic guts Their guts are great. (laughs) that's who I worked (laughs) with people with head and neck cancer. So it's a matter of delivering the nutrients into the digestive tract. And then you know, the magic of digestion takes place and, you know, and they carry on. Anyway, this was in the era, you'll remember it well, Desiree, with the refeeding syndrome Mm -hmm. about, you know, you couldn't possibly give people, and and for good reason, like, I mean, people who have absolutely been starving in concentration camps or horrendous social situations that people have been systematically starved, when you feed them a regular meal, often those people died because it was so overwhelming. It's like you kind of have to wake up your metabolism, right? So I understand that completely, but in this case, this person's gut was fine and they were going to be fine with starting, you know, not as low as, what is it, 10 mils an hour or something like that. Anyway, this... Other dietitian thought that I was incompetent, that I should, didn't wasn't I aware of a thing called refeeding syndrome? And I've said, yes, but it doesn't apply in this situation. And it's kind of like that we get these waves of fads, right? And in that particular area, it was the fad of the refeeding syndrome. Oh my golly. And I think, and I'm worried a little bit, I'm going to circle back now to gender. Why is it the way, why haven't we addressed this before? Because it hasn't been the dominant point of view. It takes a lot of Mm, whatever mm, that is, oomph takes a lot of fortitude for any group of people or individuals to say, like, as you have, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't seem that's not fitting right with me. And unlike many people, Desiree, you and I haven't left dietetics. We're still here, because I don't know about you, but I believe I have lots to offer people through the profession that I am privileged to practice. I just don't have to do it the way I was taught. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So we're yeah. like out here going through like, you know, like um, I'm thinking about Princess Bride where there's like like that swamp they go through and you <laughs> have to be careful where you step, you know, and um, we have to, we're, we're trying to find our way forward. But at the bottom of it all for me is I am, I try very hard to be a caring, compassionate human where some stranger has, has viewed me as someone they could trust to share their narrative. And I am so Privilege. Like, I'm so honored that they want to do that. So we Mm -hmm. get back to gender. Okay, I'm going to get there. So, (laughs) so it hasn't been convenient. And it has been, it's very difficult to start to change the way things are. Mm -hmm. And also, oh, another huge thing why I said we could be here all day has to do with what gets funded for research. Yeah. And who holds the purse strings, like who holds the decision making. So I'm one of many people who've written lots of grants have been rejected because like I wrote a, I wrote a grant proposal several years ago I should dust it off now and and maybe times have changed enough that it might be accepted. but but it was on trying to understand what the food nutrition and eating issues of trans and gender diverse people are. And the response from the reviewers was, well how many trans people are there in Canada anyway? Ugh goodness, how many heart transplant people are there in Canada anyway, but they still get funded, right, to find out about that life. There's a lot fewer heart transplant people than there are trans and gender diverse people they say as they get all irate. Do you know what I mean? So it's what counts as what counts as worthwhile research. So that is highly controlled. And, and like I said, like, I, it's not that people don't present proposals, don't, you know, submit proposals, is that they don't get funded. And if you don't get funded, then what do you do? So a lot of researchers get tired of playing that game. And they say, Okay, what's getting funded this year, that's what I'm going to do. Right? Right. So then we look about us as we do as dietitians and other health and human service professionals and say, okay, where's the evidence that supports what I'm supposed to do when I'm working with these people? And it's not there. So that's not the fault of the researchers. It's not the, you know, it's because we live in a, we live in this structure, all of us together, that's male dominated, white Eurocentric thinking, as you said, we're working really hard at that. And, And thank goodness, it's about darn time that we did do that right yeah. so let me just go back to that comment because it's it's loaded right how many trans and people are there in Canada anyway meaning you couldn't possibly find any in you know to do your research so we're not going to give you any money oh my goodness like literally I have one living in the house you know yeah. <laughs> one <laughs> I have several actually I have a person for whom this is relevant to their life with me yeah. in the yeah. in this house right so that and then that sounds so stupid. Like Catherine, you couldn't possibly do research with one person. That's not what I mean. I mean, look about you. Look about you. Because we are so used to looking for people who dress right, people have the right haircut, the right color, the right whatever. Where you know, and if you step out of that, what's that expression? Woe betide you. I think that's what it is from Shakespearean. Because the pressures to look and act a certain way are, are so strongly embedded in like we are all we're all socialized for that so like hats off to people who have done the really hard work of what who do I feel I am what do who do I feel I am anyway and how can I best convey my true self or live my true life right how yeah. can I do that like wow you know yeah. they've done a whole lot of work those folks and 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 it is our responsibility our canadian charter of rights and freedoms says we have to, we have we must this is the way for us that no one can be discriminated against based on their gender identity yeah. so it is up to us as dietitians to be ready for who comes and so now we get back to your points about bee and bmi right well those were designed for a machines and b <laughs> the bmi Body mass index, yeah. So you probably know more about that than I do, but it would Northern Europeans, men.
0: And insurance, the idea of creating the quote unquote average human, which was a European white male. (laughs) So, and then
1: basing Uh, everything. Northern European, right? So no short people allowed.
0: exactly. Exactly. Yeah, my 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 Portuguese folks need not apply. So,
1: mm-hmm. you know, like, but you I'm know, sorry, Portugal, you're far too short for this yeah, experiment. We're, like we're, it was, a, it was a convenience sampling, right? So we are yeah. happen to be here where there are taller European men, and we're going to create this thing called BMI to look at basically who dies earlier and who do we have to pay out insurance to? And we
0: universally apply this tool in one-on-one on one nutrition counseling where oh. if it has any utility and you know some health professionals still argue that it does i'm i'm more on the no side i'm absolutely if on the it no side has any utility it is as a population yeah. and statistics only never sitting one on one with someone and is like this is your bmi and based no. on this this is what you yeah. need to do because yeah. like you said you know this idea of competency in dietetics practice was so built on numbers and mm-hmm. and you know a legal obligation to what we call evidence based practice and you know it creates it creates a huge challenge for us when so much of the research that influences our recommendations is based on a certain, you know, tiny subset of humanity, and particularly when it's strongly gendered. Like, within my own family, you know, I have started to really be critical about how I think about how I practice nutrition and how I communicate those recommendations. And, you know, I've been trying to de-gender my nutrition recommendations, like, where I feel confident to do so. Like, A good example is I revisited, I mean, I'm a gut health gal, so like fiber is my jam. And so when I like looked at like fiber, I was like, okay, the recommendations for fiber are really based on energy intake. So it seems 100% unnecessary that it's gendered. And yet for some reason, we still say women need 25 grams and men need 38 grams. Well, like what if a man is... Five foot two and a couch potato versus what if a woman is six one and a marathoner? And so now I've shifted my recommendations to smaller, less active bodies, 25 grams a day, larger, more active bodies, 38 grams a day. The other one that I feel really comfortable in is iron because it's very clear when you look at the recommendations yeah, that the variable is menstruation. Uh-huh. You know, when a person stops menstruating, the recommendations align again, you know, mm-hmm. between genders, between men and women. So why can't we just say menstruating adults versus non-menstruating sure. adults?
1: Like that makes sense to me, right? Because like, it doesn't matter. Like for instance, I've talked to um oh, a goodly number of of people who identify as trans men who still menstruate, right? They yeah. Don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer not to. I mean, I, I most not of us to. Would. <laughs> but you know, so that's uh, you know, so their gender marker on a chart might be M. But mm-hmm. they're still menstruating. So that gets us to the question of okay, so when when is it okay or how do we politely, you know, well, politely isn't aren't we all polite? How do you raise that in a way that's safe for people or safer mm-hmm. for people to divulge that information? Right. So so I think, you know, I, I really liked what you said. There are people who menstruate, people who don't. I mean, if you have a if there's a person who's gender diverse, I don't think it's a difficult question to say, do you menstruate? Because they know whether they do or not. And if they go, uh, okay, they don't. <laughs> and they never have. And they never will. <laughs> right? And if, if they ever did or they do still, they'll go, yep, yeah, uh-huh. It's a funny thing, cis males and menstruation. So that's yeah. a funny, funny thing. Anyway, we could have a comedy to, whole routine about this. Okay, so I like that a lot, what you just said. And I've even gotten to away from the number of grams, Desiree, to mm-hmm. think about. Okay, so every, I, because I have a colleague who's, um, they live with a, an ileostomy. And they have learned an ileostomy, meaning their low, their whole colon is gone, and they collect waste in a bag through their ileum, right? It mm-hmm. comes out through their abdomen. They have learned that at least sixty grams of fiber a day is what keeps that ostomy functioning perfect, right? And all the messages they ever got, they're okay. All the messages they ever got were low fiber, low fiber, low fiber, yeah. and then that was a horrible, you know, day of trying to literally contain waste and drink enough liquid to replace losses and so on. And so they did some experimenting and lo and behold, that's what made that, that ostomy work perfect. So I'm not sure about numbers. So what I've gotten to thinking about is what is it that your gut feels it's best. And, and then that would be a good amount of fiber for you. And so, so I'm, I'm a big fan of like, I don't know. you, You probably heard me say this before eat things, that as much more foods that are that were once a plant, mm-hmm. and as close to the way it came out of the ground, right? So, so like I don't eat a raw potato. Don't do that. But there's a difference <laughs> between a baked potato and and French fries or or potato chips. You know, especially dusted with chemical flavoring. I'm making a face and that's being very judgmental about people who love food like that. I just don't like them. I never have even back in the olden days. You won't know this Desiree. So I'll tell you back in the olden days, all chips were plain. Like when I was a kid, all chips were plain. And my dad used to slice the bag on the side to make a bigger opening and put salt and vinegar on them. Yes. And, oh, I so, love and, this. and then my friend was just my friend who I've known since we were four. We lived across the road from Michigan. She goes, maybe your dad used to do that. And then there was like the big evolution to what if you put ketchup in a little dish and you dunk them. Right. And now we have ketchup flavored potato chips. Right. Yeah. But back, you know, and what if we put the little pickle and you know, like, and so <laughs> and now it's not a little pickle. It's some dust. There was yeah. no pickle. Ever Um, Desiree, um, you
0: know well exactly.
1: (laughs) There was no pickle ever to make the pickle dust.
0: And it's so interesting what you said about your friend with ileostomy, because and and where I find and this is a whole other thing. It's so different when you're sitting down one on one with someone then when you are providing public health or, and and I always hesitate saying what I do on the internet is public health, but technically it's public health because I am one person talking to many people. And you do get into this, what sells online, what hooks people in, what really sort of like attaches them to your message are these like very grandiose, very binary very definitive very statements. reductionist
1: very simple
0: exactly yeah. like lectins yeah. are evil never eat them again versus like well just like eat enough plant foods and like fiber to like make yourself feel better people would be like you know so i do like, find it is really- that
1: okay and that gets us to what do you mean there's a link between what i eat and how i feel what do you mean because I think as humans, we've been deconditioned to even do that, right, to yeah. to really feel like I, you know, I said earlier, feel our feels, but I mean that all the way, you know, like, like, you know, and in the whole, um, what is that? What's that expression? Like, uh, a gut feel? Yeah, like, literally, that's what I'm talking about. Like, oh, we could have a, the gut feel diet, De- yeah. Desiree, Desiree's <laughs> gut feel diet, Desiree's you gut know.
0: feels, feel your feels. <laughs>
1: you know like yeah if it isn't some kind so and then you think and then I think you know okay so why is that that that's what catches on that's about book sales it's about the capitalist nature of transmission of knowledge and is it about what you're calling public health like really ensuring trying to do what we can to ensure that the public is as well as they can be
0: yeah and and you know for sure. the end user too because like we have plenty of dietitians who listen but like a lot of just everyday folks who are listening and you know recognizing the the psychology that happens when you are interacting with this type of information and it's how much mm. it is about the conditioning of our minds for very reductionist, very black or white, very absolutist thinking. And like, we have to continually like check ourselves. We're like, ooh, that seems like very new and very scary. I'm now scared of lectins. And you have to go, oh, wait a second. Let me backpedal because why am I having this reaction? Is this a good reaction to have? And therefore like what is this person actually doing to me right now as opposed to actually acting out of my best interest yeah.
1: and i agree with you when you say well isn't it more appealing to people to think oh my gosh i've got numbers i've got a prescription from a dietitian so i feel safer yeah you know and when and i don't know about you but many many times i've uh, you know i always keep bits of paper like a little pad of paper beside where i'm and writing utensils and tissues. Now I would have yeah. cloth napkins that I'd bring home and wash. But anyway, in the day I had tissues, because you're going to need them, right? And sometimes it was, you know, the, the nutrition advice. So then we get into diet sheets, which ah wasn't what we were going to talk about. So we could just mm-hmm. leave that for another day. Uh, but Those are <laughs> written down reductionist views of this is what this diet is, right? If we get away from that and say, I'm here to witness your narrative and give you my very best recommendations. That doesn't rely on numbers. That probably doesn't feel as safe from for some other pe- for some people, right? Whereas, mm-hmm. but then you know, but then how many times have I heard people say, "Oh yeah, I got a brochure or a pamphlet from a dietitian or a physio, and I came home and threw it in the gar in the paper recycling." So literally, you know, they're not useful. We know no. that. <laughs> and I think a little bit of paper that says eat, try to eat more foods that were once a plant. People can do that. They can go. Oh, you know, and then, Desiree, you get people who are going, so, you know, and I would say, this is me, you know, plants. There's some foods that are roots, some foods that are stalks, some foods that are leaves, and some fruits that are the seeds, and some foods that are the fruit, right? Yeah. The thing that's got the seed. It's protecting yeah. the seed. That's the fruit. And they go, oh, my God, really? That's what plants? That's what, that's what food is? Like, there's such a disconnect. Yeah. Right? No. And and I
0: I've had this so often in our I mean my like my major tagline is literally eat more plants and like <laughs> and you'd be like it is that like it is that simple it is that pro- profound yeah. and you know you'll often have okay so like these are the fruits the vegetables the nuts the seeds the legumes the whole grains and people be like okay so like I'm at Costco and tell me like which of these crackers is the best and it's it's this idea that we are we are very conditioned to like and you know what. I love things. I mean, I'll love a spicy dill chip. Like I am, I love my things, my processed foods as much as I do my whole foods. Both can exist in our lives, in a healthful life. Yes. But we are so conditioned that like food comes out of boxes and bags that like to wrap our head around, yeah, but what do I have for a snack? I was like, oh, there's some almonds in that bag. There's a really beautiful peach right there. Like our just like our mind is blown. We're like, a peach for a A snack?
1: That could be a snack, yeah. But like,
0: yeah. what about a vente double caramel crunch frappuccino? That's a snack. I was like, no, the peach is a snack. That is a very elaborate dessert.
1: <laughs> a very elaborate dessert yeah. that, yes, that's really a milkshake in mm-hmm. hot coffee form, you know, anyway. Totally. But that's okay. Like, if you like that, go ahead, have it, yeah. right? It's not but my it, thing, but go ahead. But I think
0: it speaks to how, like, our brains just go into these very complex places when the, like transformation is in the very simple things. It's like, do you sleep? Are you highly (laughs) anxious and stressed out on a daily basis? Do you eat plant foods? Like we were constantly looking. Do you eat? Do you eat? Do Do you have clean water? Are you safe? I mean, and this is a question, we might as well jump into it right now. This is a question I wanted to ask you later because we, you know, one of the things that dietitians are taught, most of us think of us as like number crunchers or like weight loss diet or people, which couldn't be farther from the truth. But one of the core pieces of our education is food security is are Mm -hmm. the determinants of health. You know, I I was lucky enough at UBC that I felt that my education was actually, you know, pretty balanced and talking about like, well, you know, if someone doesn't have safety, if someone doesn't have a place to to cook food, like how are they going to carry out your quote unquote nutrition recommendations lady when like, Yeah, yeah, they can't cook food. And so I think that's something that we don't talk about enough. But then also Mm -hmm. dietitians, even in learning that and saying that I felt like it was balanced, gender didn't really come into that a lot. Mm -hmm. And also how gender identity impacts the determinants of health and nutrition care, like particularly the safety of trans people in our country. Like, can we talk about that a little bit?
1: (laughs) Well there isn't safety. I say yeah. that as a het-sys person myself. I just want to back up something yeah. you said and and put a little spin on that. You yeah. said, you know, we all learn about food security in our training. That isn't true, mm-hmm. sadly. <laughs> I've been a, a, what do you call it, a accreditation surveyor for university programs in Canada, and that's not true.
0: Some wow. of the programs
1: I've been through it too, it's, it's mentioned ever so briefly, but it's not you know, I would say you've had a, a solid grounding in that as the, the students who, who come through the university that I work at. But that's not we cannot say that that's um, universal in Canada or national, right? So that in itself is a problem. And it's not so many years ago. I i love to tell students this. So I'm trying to think I've been here now for 11 years. So I'm going to say it was about 20 ish years ago or so. So you would have been in school then, wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 And there was a study that was done of clinical dietitians. So that's dietitians who work in hospital. And I don't even remember who did this study. But it was like, what is your, you know, what is your connection to food security? As a clinical dietitian working with people in hospital who are going to go home. And it was overwhelmingly like more than 80% said food security has nothing to do with my job. Ooh. Ugh, right. And so so I I don't know if I coined this phrase, but I certainly think about it all the time, which is the big pit of malnutrition, just waiting outside the hospital doors that people fall into, just because no one is thinking about this very basic thing that you just said, Mm -hmm. which is do you have access to food? And some of the conversation at the time kind of cast my mind back there, because it's hard for you to remember, you know, like we have in history, there's like you impose today's values on what was right. And it's really hard not to do that. But I'm trying to think about, you know, some of the conversation was, well, my job back to what you're saying about reductionism and oversimplifying. So some of the respondents to that study say, well, my job is within the walls of this hospital. I can't think. And that's a big job already. (laughs) I can't think about what's going on outside. And also, so that would be like one thing, like, you know, capacity for one human to, it's a lot. I've worked as a clinical dietitian. There's a lot going on in clinics and hospitals to try to keep track of and do your very best job when there's lots of forces working against you to stop you from doing that. And so food security, well, you know, we were socialized that then you don't ever ask people about things like money, like income, Like safety. You don't ask them that. That's a social worker's job. You don't do that. Right. And then I think things have changed now where dietitians, I think are, I think they are more comfortable with those kind of questions. Like, can you, like, do you have food at home? I think that's, that's an okay question. Do you have food at home? There's, you're not you're not imposing anything about, are you rich? Are you poor? Like, do you have food at home? Because you could be very wealthy and have no food at home. <laughs> yeah. Right? And you could be living in poverty and have abundance food because you've got some pretty swish cooking skills there. And yeah. you know how to turn nothing into something, right? Well, almost all of our grandmothers knew how to do that. Or your great grandmother knew how to yeah. do that because they lived in poverty. Like my mom was poor and they had nothing, like literally nothing during the Great Depression in the 30s. My mom's almost 100. You know, making something out of nothing. Like, boy, what can you do with potatoes? Look at our Irish friends, right? What did they do with potatoes to stay alive? All kinds of people living in tight, tight economic circumstances all around the world have done a pretty good job of learning how to use what's available to them to stay alive, right? So, so then we get into Desiree, I roll my eyes, did you see me blink really slow? Because I guess get pretty exhausted thinking of all that, the marketing of what passes as normal, like what's considered good Mm -hmm. nutrition, you know, there's so much marketing and capitalism and feeding the whole food machine that comes with A lot of nutrition recommendations, a lot of nutrition messaging, which concerns me a lot. When, in fact, I think people, if back to what you said, you know, feel your body, like feel what digestion feels like. Yes, you know what? After you eat something, your gut does expand a little bit. It does make noise because that's normal digestion you're going to feel tired because all that blood is like in there in your abdomen doing really good work, you know, getting making sure all of those nutrients this is them they're all going to all the cells in all the body, right? Those are normal and so but but that's what i'm saying like people uh, and i'm grossly generalizing and i do apologize for people who are aware of their bodies because there are some incredible people who've done a lot of work to to feel their body, right? But just knowing that, that that's normal digestion, that's what it feels like. Like this bloatiness, that's just your gut doing its really great job. It's going to yeah. it's gonna go down, don't worry. It'll, <laughs> like not uncomfortable bloaty, but you know what I mean? Like I would yeah. say there's probably good reasons like digestively what's going on with the bloaty feeling and we can work on that. Do you know what I mean? If you go from eating, oh, I don't know, super duper low fiber, highly refined things where not, not not much fiber, and then you say, lentils are the answer, and you eat a whole whack of lentils, yeah, you're probably going to feel a bit bloaty. <laughs>
0: because- and, and doing what I do, like, that's a huge concern, like, oh, I don't eat those foods because they make me gassy. I'm like, yeah. like, gas is a good thing. Gas yeah. is a sign that, like, A, you've got fiber. B, you've got a working gut and C, you've got like all these awesome microbes doing yeah. their thing. Like doing their that, thing, right? Like, that's what you want to happen.
1: Yeah. And then and then the things that I know that we as dietitians I, I can't wait to see your face is talk to people about their bowel movements. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> about their My boobs.
0: favorite thing to do. <laughs>
1: And so I find that really funny because you know, yeah when people who are non-dietitians listen sometimes to our conversations like what are you talking about? And so for a lot of people like you know that's a taboo subject. it's dirty, it's awful. it's you know it's waste and you don't want to even think about where does that go once it leaves your body, you know and all that stuff and it is a, it is um, what would I say a a, a huge contributor to general, Feeling great, right? Like, <laughs> feeling great. Like, you know that you're a gut person. So, and I live with celiac disease. So, I know all about guts that are wonko. Anyway, you asked about gender related yeah. to what was it? reminding
0: Rel- related to the, you know, determinants of health and nutrition yeah. care. And, like, and maybe yeah. we back up to, to sort of really because I, I really want to talk about, like, you know, safe care for gender diverse people. And you know, about five years ago, you began specifically exploring transgender inclusive nutrition. And, like, what was that you you mentioned you live with a trans person in your home? like so so what was that that opening for you? What was that exploration for you? Like, how did yeah. you start?
1: Wow, there's so much there. I'm going to try to be brief. Okay. So my eldest identifies as gender neutral, but at the time identified as trans male. Mm-hmm. That person, my eldest, (laughs) doesn't live in my home, but because of COVID is here with me just because uh, and maybe that will change because things are, well, right or wrong, whether they're opening up or not. But anyway, it it just felt safer to be here with me and being, you know, if you're going to be alone in a house, you know, be alone at your place or be alone at my place with me. <laughs> we decided being alone together would be would be great. So, anyway, what happened this is before COVID, before, oh, lot, like it's quite a long while ago when they started to take testosterone injections. And they were I've, I've told you this before, I'm sure, but they were behind me. I was sitting at the kitchen table and they were over at the counter doing some some food prep. And I and I we we're just talking as you do, right? And I went, oh "My god, where's your bum? Like where did it go?" <laughs> I I don't know, mom. I'm on testosterone, you know, and like body composition changes. And I went, oh my God, body composition. I no idea that would happen. Of course that would happen. Like I just don't understand why I was so not even thinking about it, right? So so we're not talking right now, like I just want to park it, but we'll come back to it. The social determinants of health and food security and those things related to gender. Okay, that's yeah. really important. But now I'm talking about an individual whose hormonal bath that it, well, not a bath because that would be outside but inside their body the hormonal levels in their body have changed so of course there's redistribution of muscle and fat in the body of course there is and that got me to thinking like it was like we're 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 really fast thinking about holy moly i teach nutrition assessment and i have never brought this up i have never even thought about it until this minute I better get on this. I better get on this. Right. So, so then I felt really awkward about being a cis hetero woman doing this kind of research. And the, the incredibly wonderful pride groups that I talked to said, look, you're a researcher, you're a professor, you have a voice that many of us don't have. If you can use it for good to help us, please do. And I went, Okay, but but very mindful of the fact that I am cis, I am hetero, right? And I don't want to impose those, I don't want to impose anything. All I want us, all I invite us to do as dietitians is to think about how we go about nutrition assessment, and nutrition counseling, and think about how often gender informs what we do. And it's parent, it's throughout, it's all through it. So if you say, as you have done, okay, larger, body, less active bodies, bigger, more active bodies, I think that's what we have to think about is who is this person and that's pretty awkward for dietitians because we love our little you know like our cal, uh, this is me doing calculations on a calculator right <laughs> or, or writing them down 30 times <laughs> 70 kilos equals right of, and I didn't randomly pick 30 you know 30 calories per kilo like you know what I mean and yeah. so so it's it's awkward to think about but wait a second does that mean I and back to this reductionist thinking well if I'm not doing that I guess you don't need me You know, it's like, "Ah, hands up, I'm out of here. No, no, no. Like, we need to think about how has gender informed what we call our standard practice? That's a huge question. Number two, how come that happened? What what happened? It has to do with the minimizing, the crushing of women's voices or anybody who wasn't cis male. Yeah. Hetero cis male. (laughs) White cis male. White don't... English with an accent, cis male. Do you know what I mean? That's like the the top of the heap in terms of hierarchies. Gosh, some fantastic, uh, heartbreaking work has been done by people to try to, you know, stone by stone dismantle. That's not saying that white, hetero, cis men don't matter. Of course they do, but everybody else matters too you know what I mean? And so it's this whole fear of taking away my power. No, we just want to share it around a bit, you know, so back to dietitians thinking about how do I approach nutrition assessment, if if what you're saying, because what we are saying, Desiree, is that all those little arithmetic equations that you did arithmetic, I suppose it would be, are not what we're talking about, like stop, like literally stop doing them. Yeah. And the only time, the only time I personally can think of what I would want somebody to do that kind of arithmetic for me is if I were in a coma, in an ICU, and you needed to keep me alive through artificial feeding. Mm That would be it. Please make sure when I wake up, I'm well nourished. Like that would be the message, right? But if I'm alive and I'm caught, if I'm alive, dead people don't talk, right? (laughs) If I'm (laughs) conscious and I'm in an ICU... (laughs) Well, so we think, I don't know, they're probably talking right now, who knows, if we are to think about how do we approach practice to say, I'm like what you have already said, I'm here with this person, they're sharing their story with me, and I'm going to figure out what I would recommend that doesn't involve arithmetic. It would transform like that simple thing. No, like, you know, I don't say no arithmetic ever, because that's not what I just said, right. But, but, but if you say, Okay, how do I work with this person that doesn't involve crunching a few numbers, then we would transform everything. Yeah, because we have a huge amount of knowledge, we dietitians about the human body and how it uses nutrients and complexity of food, you've just mentioned, it's not um, a particular sub nutrient or nutrient, it's a it's all of those in an incredible matrix that that we don't even know. Like, I haven't even begun to understand mm-hmm. how food works in the body, right? It's yeah. so fascinating. So non-arithmetic, and then can we go back to food security? And
0: yeah, please.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. This is like like twirls of it's like curly hair. Eventually, it all you know.
0: But, but it's also beautiful because I think you know you know for so many people listening who think that what nutrition is is a set of rules and guidelines and math this really just starts to hammer home like nutrition is not just a science it is also an art there is an oh, enormous amount of nuance and also like personal and professional let, let's call. Let's re, le, reclaim this word of competency, but competency around taking the human in front of you, taking mm-hmm. what you know, considering their lifestyle, their ability to feed themselves, and turning that into actual meaningful care is like hugely complex.
1: So I'm going to do a commercial mess- no, non-commercial message, non non commercial message, but a promotional message for. Critical dietetics, which mm-hmm. is exactly what you just said, is exactly what we've been working on with critical dietetics. There have been those of us. Remember, you said at the very beginning, I felt like a square peg in a round hole, yeah. and that's the thing that we find. With uh, I was part of a group that that the first gathering of people to talk about, to, you know, what is this thing we're talking about, and we called it critical dietetics. And do we want to move forward with it, or is are we happy? We've just all had- Jackie, Doctor Jackie Zingra, convened that meeting with a shirk grant and bless them for doing that because it was uh, it it was transformational in our history and what we find at conferences is that people come dietitians come to the conference and go you're my people i've been looking for you for a long time because they're all people this is so interesting desiree all people who at one time have said I'm a square peg in a round hole. Well, if there's enough of you, then that means, or there's enough of us, that means that that's just a way of being and let's celebrate that, right? And as opposed to what you and I were, how we were socialized to stuff that down and don't let it come to the surface in order to meet your competencies, in order to become credentialed. And so what I think that's done is just squashed creative thinking because we were, I'm going to, like our brains are incredible and like you just said like they're just like they're they're all over the place all the time and the challenges we we are socialized. like when we want to write we've got to silence all of that and say okay what's my message that I'm gonna write and if you're not able to do that because there are lots of people that just like I find writing incredibly difficult because I know what I want to say but I have to make it linear and I don't want to. That's not how my brain works, right? So to celebrate the way you are and the way you think. And oh, my goodness, there's a whole lot of pathologizing of that, isn't there now?
0: Yeah, there is. And I, okay. you know, for <laughs> anyone who's listening, because I want to make sure that the idea of critical dietetics doesn't get lost as an idea. Like this is a very, this is a movement. And there are also tangible things associated with it. There is a conference. There is also a, an academic journal. Mm -hmm. of critical dietetics too so if you are a dietitian seek it out
1: (laughs) you know what i said earlier about the difference between submitting something not that there's funds available but i did submit a grant right to look at food nutrition eating issues of trans and gender diverse people getting a response that well how many are there? Like, would you even find people to participate as opposed to over on the critical dietetics world? That's super interesting. Why haven't we thought the very questions you're asking? Why haven't we thought about that before? How come we ignored gender up until now? Hmm. You know, and another thing, and, and thing does it right is that I have a a colleague who did outpatient nutrition counseling Mm -hmm. for decades who said oh my gosh when I think back now the vast majority of people who came into that service were perimenopausal women and I never ever ever asked them about menopause and how it was affecting their relationships with their bodies and food Mm. right yeah like again, there you go, because that wasn't the dominant thing that we are supposed to think about in our training. And and also another another instance of this would be, you know, when people always ask me, well, what's your research about? And I research two two well, many things, but two things dom- predominantly trans and gender diverse people, their food nutrition and eating issues, and also what's it like to eat when you're sick, and the whole feeding a loved one who's sick, how. Incredibly difficult, that is, when the desire to eat is gone away. And so almost always when I say that, I'm talking about social gatherings like cups of coffee and community yeah. day on Canada Day, you know, and stuff like that. Oh, people with eating disorders? And I go, oh, no, <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> like if it's people in the relationship with food, somehow that's categorized as eating disorders, whereas it's all of us. Every mm-hmm. single human on the planet, it's, and I dare say every animal on the planet has a relationship with food, right? Well, plants do. Yeah. And I go, no, well, no, how did how did that happen? Like, that's reductionism again. Like, I'm trying to make sense of what you told me. Gosh, it's complex. Oh, you must be talking about eating disorders. No, no. Or people who self-label as having an eating disorder. When and what it is, I think, this is my Is it a theory? Maybe, you know, that the preponderance or the incidence of eating disorders in people who identify as gender diverse is higher. And what I'm wondering right now is, is that so or is it dietary cacophony is I just don't know what to do. I'm kind of stumped. So instead of eating, I just don't eat because I don't know what to do and I don't want to mess it up. Right. And I think like there's some research I would love to do, love, love, love to do. Like what 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 does that really mean to say there's a higher incidence of eating disorders? Yeah. So that gets to there is. Yeah, <laughs> there is. Yeah. <laughs> higher incidence of of uh, of well, what, what's labeled right now eating disorders. And it has to do a lot with. This is super relevant to what we just talked about of, of, you know, getting away from the arithmetic parts of nutrition assessment of what we found our research at Acadia, the group that that's there is um, the performing of one's gender identity is real is the number one thing on, on the people, the pride groups that we've worked with. That's the number mm-hmm. one thing on their minds is how do I look like. My gender identity, because we are socialized as women on a binary, women and men to eat in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Women are supposed to be neat. You're not supposed to have stuff on your face. You're supposed to take small bites so that, you know, and you're not supposed to eat too much and uh, you're supposed to eat like it just, it's all laughable, you know, feminine foods, whatever that is. And men like meat, you know, and I even have a, I even have an ad that I use in teaching for students to get this point. It was like, and it's an ad for salad, I think salad, you know, salad ingredients, 10 rest salad recipes that even a man would like. What is that? Like, what the
0: heck does that even and I you know, and I had this on our list of things to talk about because you know, like we do have these weird gendered notions about like, and when I was so you maybe I was in a lovely little University of British Columbia bubble, but like I had a professor, Gwen Chapman, and I was really fascinated by her work because she did yeah. research, for example, looking at the gendered nuances in nutrition. She did some, like, research on, like, fire halls because, of course, this is typically, like, a male-dominated area, but then, on quote-unquote, unusually for men, also had a really strong food culture of, mm-hmm. of cooking and, and deriving status in the fire hall of cooking and, like, sort of, like, pulling this all together. And, like, when I, when I sort of open up to like, okay, if someone doesn't fit the gender binary or someone is transitioning, yeah, like, how do these expectations like weigh
1: on their new identity? That's exactly what I mean about yeah. that's the cacophony, right? Yeah. Like how, you know, so, and I mean, I think, you know, probably it's the school of hard knocks that some people who were transitioning experience going, well, you don't seem to be eating like a woman. You know, like, and that raises questions. So they wa- don't want to, people don't want to draw drop. Again, here I come as a person who's not living this life. But from what I understand, don't want to draw attention to themselves, because the homophobia, transphobia that people experience is, is ubiquitous. Uh, it's yeah. everywhere. And they don't want to draw attention to themselves for personal safety reasons, right? So, so I guess I better learn how to eat. What does it look like when you're a woman, right? How to eat and learning that as opposed to, I was just talking about it and saying, well, you know, girls, women are socialized to eat small. And I had a, a I was on a committee with, actually for um, a trans health committee. And there was a person there who was transitioning, who told this story. And this is so revealing that they took, uh, they, they and their partner have four children, four teenagers. They took them to um, an all you can eat Chinese place. A buffet, and the proprietor came up to transitioning person and said, "Come on, buddy, you can eat more than that." And mm-hmm. and they said, "Wow, as a w- identifying as a woman or appearing like a woman, no one would have ever muttered those words to me, yeah, ever, right?" And and so I I guess I'm doing it. I guess you know, like I'm putting something on them. But I'm thinking, well, oh, I guess I look like a man now. That's good. Yeah, that's what I wanted. Right? Whatever a man is right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I look, I'm being treated the way I want it to be yeah. treated, and that's affirming, right? So, but but also thinking about, yeah, you're right. As a woman, women don't hear those words. Come yeah. on, you could eat more than that. Yeah.
0: you know? It's like, oh, wow, you're hungry today. Like, just.
1: Yeah, some very denigrating things, right? Wow, and, you must be hungry.
0: And I mean, yeah, and, and, right. and to those, you know, <laughs> to those funding boards who were like, well, how many, you know, these notions, these concepts, these constructs affect us all. You know, like gender diverse and gender neutral discussions and nutrition affect us all, not just Mm -hmm. you know gender diverse or you know trans people. Like they, it's it's like de literally deconstructing all of this stuff that we decide you are this or you eat this way or your body should be this way.
1: So I was just thinking, as you said, that when we talk about gender diversity, that includes people who Mm -hmm. happily sit on the binary, right? So it Mm -hmm. actually is all of us, all All of of us. us. All of us, and it's not an eating disorder. It's just all of us think or, or don't think. Deborah Lupton, who's an Australian sociolo- food sociologist, has a has a, a term that she calls unthoughts related to food and eating. Mm-hmm. That there are the things we don't even think about. Like there's, you know. So what you're talking about is yes, we're thinking, but according to her thinking, Deborah Lupton's thinking about this is that that's so tiny it's not even. Like it doesn't even get us below 95% of what we think of, right? Like it's yeah. like like what we think of is so teeny-weeny compared to everything that surrounds us and influences our eating. And so when you start to be aware of that, it's it does get overwhelming. And I can see that's where the cacophony and the the feeling stuck. Like I don't know what to eat, so I guess I'll eat nothing at all. Or feel really guilty about anything I put in my mouth, yeah. which is also... I don't know celebrating being alive and this ner- this food is nourishes you to keep going another hour or two you know <laughs> or probably 4 uh, 4 hours. <laughs> oh gosh, there's so much to for us so like much. I so thank you for for this podcast Desiree because there's so much to uh in the language that's called unpacking. I don't really like that term unpacking, but when we start to think about holy poo, what's going on yeah. in in um uh, this everyday Thing, right? There's some really fabulous uh, researchers that I had the opportunity to study as a doctoral student, you know, whose work now might be considered dated, but I, uh, and one of the last name is Smith, and I can't think of their first name. Dorothy Smith. Yeah, 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 yeah. Patricia Thompson is another person, right? The study of the everyday. I love that. I love it because it's so complex. And and I have, now I live in Nova Scotia, and when talking to people about like people in government about, like I said, the pit of malnutrition sitting outside the hospital door for everybody. Yeah. And uh, when I've talked to people in government or in, you know, health about, you know, have you th- like, what could we do about that? And they've going, oh, yeah, food and eating mm, it's so complex, we just can't even wrap our heads around it. So we do nothing. Yeah. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like those of us who are willing or able and really want to delve into that complexity, we sh- mm. like we have to right? And, and come up and, with some solutions.
0: And, you know, for prote- practitioners listening to this who are like, yeah, wow, okay, this is big, but I want to take a bite out of it. Like, <laughs> you know, what What are the resources? And of course, you have a website that you are, you know, starting to build yeah. up as a resource. And, yeah. you know, so tell us about your website. And then yeah. also, oh, what nice. other resources are coming our way so that we can do better in this?
1: Yeah, so I, I'm going to start with the, the way that I I work with students because I'm teaching students research methods, right? So the requirements for them for any paper is they have to look at the peer-reviewed literature. So what's that saying? We've been socialized that that's it. That's the word. That's the word. But that's just one, right? Look at gray literature. So that's anything coming from government. Anything that, anything, if you think about it, that could move their earl on the internet, that's gray literature. If it's a if it's a peer reviewed journal article, they get an Earl. That's it forever. They don't move it. They don't move journal articles around. But anything else, the Earl can move. So governments, any commodity group, any public health related group, any chronic disease like diabetes association or celiac association or intestinal health Association. I don't know if there is such a thing, but there is. Is isn't there? The Canadian Digestive Health Association. Yes. Yeah. The Di- Canadian Digestive Health Health Association. Coast, it's there, you go there there's you go. association so that's a gray literature source right yeah. like what are they writing about because there are gems in there right mm. like little hints that you go aha that person's thinking a bit like me if you're thinking anybody thinking this is a big invitation i'm not buying this i'm not buying what i see presented to me as the evidence you're in really good company like really good company. And and it doesn't take too much of just putting that out there to people to find other friends to play with. And the 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 joy of having this way of communicating as we do right now. Like we're five thousand kilometers apart right now, Desiree. And yeah. it looks like we're in the right. same room. Sounds like we're in the same room. Feels like amazing. we're in the same room. <laughs> it is amazing where we wouldn't we weren't able to do that 20 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So so okay peer reviewed, gray literature, like online resources. So what mm. are people, let's say you're you're interested in celiac disease, or you're interested in living with ostomies, go to something like Reddit and subreddits. And what are people actually writing about? Right? What are they actually? Yeah. And then, oh, and pen, what's on pen? Yes. So you know, very well. So that's practice based evidence and nutrition, which is a database of information. So what's there? Because you know, and I know, Desiree, that a lot of that is what was already in the peer reviewed literature. And number one, it's been interpreted for use by dietitians. So, So you have to take all of that information and process it yourself. Our brains are wonderful things, and they'll do that for us. Usually when we're sleeping, or we're mowing the lawn, or we're washing dishes, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Your brain will sort things out for you while you're busy doing other things. And you go, oh, that's what's going on here. And I guess that's what I've done with the with the research that I'm doing is for both groups of people, those caregivers who are feeding loved ones who are really ill and also working on behalf of trans and gender diverse people is to say, OK, I'm hearing a lot of stuff here. I've read what's in the literature in the t- in terms of trans and gender diverse people and nutrition, food and eating issues. Not much. I see. um. There's just a little bit. There's a little bit, and it's like all the kind of writing that's about don't be like be careful about people's pronouns, be respectful of people's names and pronouns, and and so we've had that, and I would say that's like a historic thing, and we're moving on, I hope, (laughs) where that's like oh yeah sure that makes total sense, let's do that, and then there's there's a kind of research or kind of presentation of holy smokers, all of this is really changed and we don't know what we're doing, but there you go, get at it. You know, that kind of like that's not what people are saying, but they're saying, you know, we have to question things yeah. and rightly so. And then what I'm trying to do is provide a okay, so given all of that, here's what I would suggest. It's not meaning for a second that this is it forever carved in granite and you can't muck with it. Of course you can. That's what I want people to do, right?
0: So okay, definitely go to the peer <laughs> reviewed. But are there because you mentioned I think you oh, mentioned yeah, yeah, that yeah. there are actually like guidelines for gender new. Yeah. Like gender diverse yeah. coming care out of these. The work, fingers,
1: I'm working on them and it's taken me beautiful. a long time and I'm getting close to actually, and I'll tell you with a big it's a big story but, but I really had a hard time because I was trying to do what we talked about earlier. I was trying to make it look like every other set of clinical practice guidelines. and I realized mm-hmm. that that's not going to work because mm-hmm. there are no numbers. First of all, no numbers, no mentions of weight. No, nothing like that. Right. So it's like, have a look at the person in front of you. I am a really big fan. You've already mentioned gut function. And how's it going? Right. Ask people like draw a line above and below the stomach. I always do this. Right. So from from your um, epigastric, the the join of your esophagus to your stomach up. How's it going eating? how's that going? Because that's how we ingest food, right? Is there anything coming up there, teeth, mouth, tongue, you know, anything, being able to sit upright, <laughs> stuff like that, right? That will affect food intake. And then say, okay, from that line down, how are things going? Because that's where digestion takes place, right? Mm-hmm. And and people, they they don't know about human anatomy, but they know that there's kind of like a get food in and then there's a digestion and, yeah. and then waste comes out. So that's useful. Like anybody, anybody has that kind of anatomy. <laughs> Yeah. If they have a functioning gut, you know, <laughs> or a non-functioning gut. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of work that I've always tried to do is let's turn this into something that's like dispense with the, the overbearing kind of mathematics or arithmetic of it all. And just try to look at the person in front of you and get a sense of what their needs are. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, so that's about caregivers, the great un- ignored, the amount, if we paid every caregiver a wage for the work they do, we couldn't, it would crash our economy. It's it's something I think in, I can't, I don't even know the numbers, like it's billions and billions and billions of dollars. Right. And most of that work is done by women. So there's another gendered aspect of it. So we can't think about the people in front of us, as you said before, alone because there's somebody if they're sick there's somebody in their life who's helping take care of them and that person needs our care and attention and love too so okay so there's that there's feeding loved ones who are sick and then there's the trans and gender diversity so what I did is I created kathmorley.com I I still am employed for another few weeks and then I will be you know retired from one job and and launching katherine morley dietetics and that's so thank you for asking about that. And and really what I want to do there is is in 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 that with that website as the basis is provide information for people that if it resonates with them, that's fantastic. And if it doesn't. Let me know and let's figure out what can work for folks. So it's not so much that I'm in the, you know, in the business of providing nutrition counseling. I just want to get the information that's stored in this out (laughs) (laughs) before I go, before I, before I die, because... It's, you know, I don't want it to be, well, I've been working on this stuff all these years, and I haven't really had a chance to publish it. I'm just going to get it out there. And also, mm-hmm. Desiree, you may well jump to, isn't that grey literature? It absolutely is grey literature. I'm, I've am i done the trying to get things published route, and I'm, I'm quite fed up with it, actually. I'm just tired mm-hmm. of it. You know, when you do groups with, uh, like as I have, with pride groups here in Nova Scotia, you know, and then, and then you get responses from reviewers saying, well, what was your sample size? And what was your hypothesis? Well, the sample size was whoever showed up when the sign was put up that, the, that there's going to be an event here. Yeah. It, you know, you're being forced back into those rigid thing, what counts as knowledge. And, totally. I, and I reject that notion. I, yeah. I think all of our knowledge is important. And I'm not talking about like, I'm just going to sound awful. Like things that are half-cocked crazy stuff. I'm talking about your lived experience, my lived experience. What do we see and and valuing that for what it is? Because that's how we've made decisions as humans for a long, long time. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on. And there is a blog called feeding a loved one who is sick or flows is what it spells. Mm -hmm. And there's also a podcast for dietitians uh, And it's called Nutrition Counseling Unscripted with Carol Townsend, who's a dietitian in Thunder Bay. And the two of us found each other, kind of like this conversation. We just found each other and said, let's start talking. So that's that. That's where folks can find. And I'd love to hear from anybody. KathMorley.com. No. Yeah, calf at calfmorley.com. Yeah. 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 And we'll
0: make sure to put in the show notes like links to your blog and your podcast and all of those good things. And thank you. I, I feel it. like we we could honestly talk for hours. I'm so energized mm-hmm. by this conversation, but yeah, we'll just have to have you back. We always close with our rapid fire questions. That's sort of oh, our shoot. like beloved all sorts, <laughs> all sorts <laughs> tradition. Okay. And so they're all over the place. So okay. the first question is best book you've read this year
1: i've reread persuasion by jane austen i love that Ooh. book i love that book cuz it's about what we've been talking about of of breaking free from the from the societal expectation that other people can persuade you what you're going to do in your life and just and i love that i love the story and the fact that jane austen wrote it around 1800 means that we've all been living with this kind of women and living with this kind of pressure of just do what you're told And, you know, a young woman deciding, I know what's right for me. That's what I'm going to do. It's a timeless story and it's really worthwhile. And I'm a member of the Jane Austen Society of North America. So (laughs) Jane Austen's always a go-to for me because she put into words what a lot of us have experienced in life in a much more restricted time for women than we are in right now. I have not read that one.
0: And I'm not so
1: much a fan of, like, I've tried to, like, fix. I really try, but and I have lots of really great books like like this book here. When things fall apart, that I like to reread, you know, so um, to remind myself, like the people that we work with as dietitians, this is where they are, right? Like things have fallen apart, yeah. And and so how do you? How are you? You know, it's what you and I've talked about. Be yeah. there. Be be a safe place for people to share their often difficult story.
0: Yeah,
1: almost always difficult story. Yeah.
0: That's that's actually an amazing, that is an incredible book recommendation for-
1: Yeah, I like that. um, Unbelievable. uh, Yeah, there's so many. Anyway, there's so, and of course, a really good one that I'm going to read again, just because of personal things that I want to um, go back and revisit this one here, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a classic uh, existential um, book that he wrote, uh, thinking about surviving the Holocaust in Germany and looking about as a psychiatrist and I think he's a psychiatrist and looking about him for who dies and who who lives like yeah. what is it that's keeping people going when everything we shouldn't be here right yeah all everything's working against us here what keeps us going and it's the people who have made meaning from their life there, there is no search for meaning there is no meaning it's what you make it yeah. right and that for me is a lesson I have to keep learning all over over and over and over again I think we all do
0: I think yeah. that's the human condition. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But your favorite, because your transplant, your favorite thing about living in the Maritimes?
1: Oh, the food supply is amazing. Yeah. It's incredible because nothing travels very far. And mm-hmm. it seems like, so I live in a rural place about 40 minutes outside of Halifax, which is everywhere outside of Halifax. Yeah. <laughs> And there are all kinds of at the end of the driveway, you know, a few cucumbers, a few raspberries, whatever. And it's and it's just like that person picked it that day, right? And it's like a buck. It's, it's like everything is Amazing. cheap and an honor system, and I just love it. I never had that living in a city ever, so I like that a lot. Oh, oh I love that. And I love the people. Like everybody is chatty. Like you can have really nice conversations with people in the grocery store line up where we're and I lived in. A- big city. Everybody's, yeah, including yeah. me. I was not communicative, right? Why,
0: why are you talking to me? What's wrong with yeah, you? Yeah,
1: why are you talking to me, yeah. you weirdo? You know, know, no, it's not like that. Say, hey, how's it going? You know, like, uh, hey, how's it going? Yeah, it's really lovely. You go for a walk and every single person passes by, it goes, hey, how's it going?
0: It's Friday night. Do you get takeout or do you cook something? And if so, what do you cook?
1: Well, I live in a rural area, so I don't get takeout because there isn't, everything is a well, big But there's drive. no
0: DoorDash to the... <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, no, no, gosh, no, no, no. I mean, so I love that. I love the quiet. And and I, and I mean, I, like, I do have a town here. It's not like there's just no. Anyway, so if I do get takeout, okay, well, this is a complicated. I know it's supposed to be rapid fire, but I live with celiac disease. And I also malabsorb sugar alcohols, which probably the vast majority of humans do. So for you as a gut health person, Desiree, mm-hmm. malabsorption of xylitol, mannitol, aspartame, all these things accounts for a lot of bad stuff in people's guts. Anyway, I have to be really, really, really careful about that. So I do make almost like most of my own food. And when I go mm-hmm. out, I have like a, a little a little companion sh- companion pills to deal with symptoms yeah. that are going to come. I can't really trust anything I eat outside. So what do I cook? One of our favorite things is brekkedin. So we have breakfast foods at dinner time.
0: Ah, I love, uh, so instead of breakfast for dinner, it's brekkedin.
1: We call it brec-a-din I in our house. And also we've become, I've become a really big fan of a salad with some kind of protein on it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't care what. So in a salad that's got seeds and nuts and dried fruits and apple and just like, and I love crunchy. So crunchy is my go-to. I love crunchy. If it's like a stew that doesn't crunch, I'm not so fond of that. It has to be crunchy, yeah. awesome. Yeah.
0: Okay, one thing you would tell your younger
1: dietitian self trust your gut, trust your gut that when you think I'm not buying this, that that's worth exploring further. Because I didn't know what to do, Desiree, when that yeah. happened. Going, anyway, I was just gonna say there's a big closet full of diet sheets and going, I don't, I don't feel comfortable giving this to people, but I was a youngster. And I was told that's what you're supposed to do, along with a Canada's food guide attached to the back, which was just mixed messages all over the place, right? Yeah. And I remember thinking, I I don't think this is right, but I did it anyway. And so I should have tried, because that's what I've ended up doing in my life is going, okay, so what was that really? I didn't realize that till this very moment, but what was that all about going, I'm not buying this. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm doing what I have to, because I have to get the credential here. And there's no one around here questioning what we're doing. So I'll be quiet. (laughs) And I moved to another place where it was all about questioning what we did, which was great. So my younger self, I would say, you know, you're not, this is right, like you're on the right track here. But look into that, right? Mm -hmm. And know that there are multiple ways of exploring things, not the very limited view that you've been taught. Okay. And last one, what
0: is giving you hope right
1: now? I've had a tough time recently with some very ageous things that I've experienced. And that really makes me very sad. So I'm, I'm not really, I am full of hope, because we're in a time right now in dietetics, where something's happening, something revolutionary is happening. And I don't have words for it. But I think it has to do with what you and I've talked about, of embracing multiple ways of knowing, celebrating multiple ways of knowing, celebrating the diversity of humans, and the privilege we have, to work with them and how much we can learn from them. I think that, that, that gives me hope. That gives Mm -hmm. me hope. What I'm finding hard to deal with is ageism that, that somehow once there's a magical age, you reach that you're not relevant anymore. And that Mm -hmm. really hurts. Like it's really painful. And, and that's classifying all people by their age. This is what we've been talking about all this time, right? Classifying people according to their gender and expecting that, you know, all about them when you can't possibly, right? and so just categorizing everybody by their age as if they can't like we do the same thing with very young people and that makes me sad right like "Ah, you don't know nothing but that's not true like they're Mm -hmm. young people who are living through a complex time like let's learn from each other right so what's giving me hope is there's something going on, something really fundamentally important going on about how we organize education, about how we accredit it, about how we, about what are we doing, what are we doing in this profession, and talking about it like you are, yeah. right? That gives me a lot of hope. So, so just even, I would say, I wouldn't even don't want to minimize it with just even being on your podcast is mm-hmm. giving me hope, because you're willing to talk about these things, Desiree, and I'm so grateful. Well, and I'm so grateful
0: that is. For you and the work that you do, like I said, we're just going to
1: have to have more conversations. Okay, let's do that. That'd be fun. <laughs> I'd love to do that.
0: Before we close, I want to acknowledge the deep privilege that both Catherine and I share in getting to even have this conversation as cisgendered white women who don't experience the kind of discrimination and lack of safety that visibly gendered diverse people do. And that we couldn't even begin to have this discussion without decades of activism from the 2 LGBTQIA plus community. I hope that everyone who hears this episode moves forward in some small way to encourage safer, more inclusive spaces for everyone in their communities. And I welcome your feedback on how I can do better as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the All Swords Podcast, which is produced by myself and edited by Brian McCalman. We are grateful to live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, Stolo, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Until next week, friends, be well.